I'm Stephen Becker. I was a district court judge for 26 years in Reno County, Kansas. I followed that career with serving six years in the state legislature. I'm Beth White. I spent my career in the criminal justice field, specifically with the Department of Corrections in the parole services industry. And this is Cleared. Just recently, I think you were able to witness something kind of cool. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah. Before uh, before we introduce our subject of today's episode, I want to talk briefly. Um, I love it when the issue that Beth and I are so passionate about rises into the uh, media mainstream. And uh, one week ago, one week ago... It did here, um, here locally. Uh, Hutchinson has, has such a gem in our community. It's called the Dillon Lecture Series. Uh, it's hosted by Hutchinson Community College, and it brings speakers from around the nation, um, frankly, would not normally come to Hutchinson, Kansas. Sure. And... Um, Last week, it was Amanda Knox. She is an exoneree. Uh, So I was so pleased that that subject matter came before our uh, community. She is a high-profile exoneree. What I was encouraged about is the attendance at the event. It was very well attended, and there were buses and buses of school children uh, brought to this event, and I just love that. Uh, What Beth and I are trying to do here is educate people that um, this population exists, these people that have been wrongly convicted. We want to educate people that it exists, and secondly, how frequently it occurs. And I'm so glad those students were subjected to uh, this issue that's uh, so very important to us. So uh, thank you, uh, Hutchinson Community College. Thank you for all the patrons and sponsors that um, bring these speakers to Hutchinson. Um, I was so happy to see that happen. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, and anybody that's not familiar with the Amanda Knox case, I encourage you uh, to do some research on it. I unfortunately was not able to go to her lecture series, but I did have the opportunity to listen to some podcasts that she was interviewed on. And she is so articulate and she's so well-spoken about not only the physical loss of her liberty that was taken from her when she was convicted and sentenced, but also the loss of her life. That meaning who she wanted to be and what she wanted to become. She talks about how she realized that was never going to come to fruition because she was always going to have this in her background. Every time she came to the United States, it it occurred in Italy, correct? Right? That's correct. She was a student in Italy. Um, So when she returned after she was exonerated, this conviction and all the publicity that followed it just followed her around everywhere. And she really chose to embrace that. And I think she's a very wonderful advocate, very well spoken on the subject of wrongful convictions. I agree. And one more thing before we leave uh, Amanda Knox and get to our feature, Um, the Hutchinson News, uh, 
covered the event and gave a feature article. And I wanted to, so thank you Hutchinson News for doing that. I wanted to read two statements about, um, or how the article begins. Amanda Knox initially thought the courtroom as a scientific laboratory where information is boiled down and the truth is found beyond a reasonable doubt. Instead, she learned that this was the scene of a battle, a battleground of storytelling, as the authorities wrongly convicted her of murder. Okay, moving into the topic of today. Did you want to say something about uh, our podcast having a Facebook Yes, page? yes. Please. We have gotten with the times. <laughs> you have. We have. We have created a Facebook page and an Instagram account that we would love for you to reach out to us with suggestions for people you want to cover, questions, concerns, thoughts, the whole nine yards. We'd love to hear from you about what we're doing here and how we could do it better and what we're doing good. All the above. Thank you for doing that. Yes. And also, um, we're going to include maybe some pictures about the individual's lives and what's going on when we release episodes too. So that way you can have a visual um, with the story that goes along with it. Our Facebook account is Cleared Podcast. And on Instagram, you can find us at Cleared Pod. So we hope to hear from you soon. Today, um, Dad and I chose to talk about an individual who happens to be convicted out of Kansas. His name is Eddie James Lowry. Eddie was born in California. He was one of eight kids, big family. He describes his childhood as very traditional. Uh, He was very into sports, especially in high school. He played a lot of football. Because he was one of eight kids, money was tight. So he decided it would be best for him and his future if he joined the military. He ultimately decided to join the Army and was stationed at Fort Riley in Kansas. He moved his wife and his three-year-old daughter at the time um, to Kansas and made the decision to move to the small little town of Ogden, uh, just right outside the military base. Little did he know that this decision to move there would have consequences that would affect the rest of his life. On July 26, 1981, a 74-year-old woman was sleeping in her house when she was assaulted and attacked. The perpetrator put a pillow over her head and began punching her repeatedly in the face with the butt end of a knife. The perpetrator then raped her and fled from the scene on foot. She immediately called the police who came and transported her to the hospital where she cared to her wounds. She had some wounds on her face, obviously, from being hit, and a rape kit was taken from her at that point. Unfortunately, with it being dark, she wasn't able to really describe him at all, other than saying that he was a medium-built man. That very same night of the crime, Eddie, just a few blocks away at his house, was having a party. It was about 3.30 in the morning, and he decided he needed a little break from the action and was going to go to the grocery store or the convenience store and pick up a pack of cigarettes. He got a couple blocks away from his house when he hit a parked vehicle on the street. He said the vehicle was black, and he just didn't see it. Um, It must have been a pretty decent hit wreck because he ended up splitting his chin open on the steering wheel, and he said that his forehead hit the windshield of the car. The police came to review the accident. Um, They gave him a field sobriety test, which he passed, and issued some sort of instant report or citation for him and then let him go. To his surprise, the following day, Eddie receives a call from the police detectives they ask him to come in to the station because they have some questions for him. He just assumes it has to do with the car wreck, so he makes his way in. He was shocked when he arrived at the police station and they started asking him about the rape of a 74-year-old woman that had occurred that same night. Eddie was floored. He didn't even know why they would ever think he had something to do with this, and he told them, I have nothing to do with this, and he left. The very next day, again, the detectives called Eddie. They asked him to come back in because they had a couple more quick questions for him. Those couple few quick questions turned into almost an eight-hour interrogation. 
The line of the questions became increasingly aggressive and hostile. Uh, At multiple points during the interrogation, they insisted that there had to be something mentally wrong with him, that he wasn't right in the head. How could he do this to this person? Just not a good scenario. From what I understand, granted, I don't know a whole lot about the military, and maybe you could fill me in on this, but one of the main reasons on why I decided that probably wouldn't be a good career path for myself, my sensitive little cancer self, is that yelling probably isn't out of the question when you're in the military. You probably are going to get yelled at. That's not something my sensitive self could handle, but Eddie, being a veteran, being in the Army, this is something he was probably used to. He talks about during this eight-hour interrogation, he completely broke down with his head on the table, sobbing multiple points all throughout this interrogation. I think it really speaks towards the language and the manner in which he was being talked to in order for somebody like him to break down to that level with just two people talking to him for that short a time. Let me interrupt here just for a moment, Beth. I want to say something about... um this case before it got to the interrogation, it seems like um, law enforcement was quick to uh, focus on Eddie. Um, And I understand it was a very small town. um, And I think his auto accident occurred um, within minutes of the uh, rape. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I can see where they can look at. This is the guy that uh, was, this was his Him getaway. Slink. Yes, and I, I forgot to mention that. He left his house to get cigarettes at 3.36, somewhere around them, which was like 10 to 12 minutes after the rape had been reported. And unlucky for him, the rape was just a few blocks away from where the accident was. So the detectives automatically zeroed in, like you said, and said, he's fleeing from the crime. He hit the car. That's what happened. Yes, and, and I can certainly understand that right away he's a suspect. I, I would agree with that. Um, but I think they, I think law enforcement uh, jumped further than that. I think we're all quick to judge. We're always quick to reach a judgment about anything, really. And I don't know if that's a universal trait of humanity or... Anyway, some of us try not to do that, but it's so easy to do. But what I'm saying is I think law enforcement should be held to a higher standard in that regard. In this case, they focused on Eddie Lowry, and there was no further investigation. I mean, they were focused on Eddie. They did nothing else in to investigate this case. Um, Well, a lot of times on those crime shows, too, you'll hear the detectives say how big of a problem it is to decide who the suspect is and then work backwards, how you just only only take in evidence that's convenient and goes along with the theory and how damaging that could be for the case, which very much sounds like what happened here. It does. I I think the uh, law enforcement determined that Eddie Lowry was guilty, and now it's time to search for evidence that supports that. And when you do something like that, you kind of, you don't want to be distracted from things that don't support that. Like the truth. <laughs> like the truth. It's like a tunnel, you know. You, you want to justify, or you, yes, you want to justify what you have already concluded. And, uh, and that's dangerous. That's, uh, and let, one more thing about that. I want to mention that that mindset or that, thinking permeates the case because once the uh, charges are filed, once the formal complaint is filed, um, then the prosecutor, I think, is locked in. And what he is, his goal, Beth, his goal is a conviction at that point. Oh, for sure. The charges have been filed. He filed them. And his goal is a conviction, and he's going to do the same thing, focus on nothing but getting a conviction. In theory, our whole system, our criminal justice system and jury trials and things like that is 
a search for the truth. Mm -hmm. And even when I say that, I know how cliche that sounds. It's supposed to be a search for the truth. What I'm suggesting is that the goal is the conviction. That's the gold ring. That's the ring that they're trying to seize. And in doing so, uh, yeah, they, they don't look any further. I would, <laughs> I would challenge anyone to ask a career prosecutor what his conviction rate is. And he knows it like that. That is so important to them. And why, why is that even important, Beth? Yeah. This is not a win-lose thing. This isn't a sport where someone wins and someone loses. I know it's adversary. It's state of Kansas versus John Doe. That's an adversarial system. But it's not a win and a lose. But I tell you what, that conviction rate, that win-loss record is important, is important to prosecutors just as much as it is to major league baseball pitchers. They live by that. And that I'm going into all that because I'm saying that's what leads to cases like Eddie Lowry. Agreed. Okay. And just, just to geek out here for a minute, you said that's the gold ring that they're looking for is that conviction, which immediately brought to mind a perfect metaphor which is the Lord of the Rings and Schmeagol and the Golden Ring. He's, he wants that ring at all costs, even if it destroys him, which I think is a good reference. Do you get that at all? Yeah, okay, I didn't think so. Um, just a little bit of perspective on this. The detectives' nicknames, I don't know if they're self-imposed or other people impose them on them, are Mad Dog and Dirty Harry. I don't know in what world those are positive things that you would want to be associated as, but they definitely... Uh, wear those as a badge of honor. So we're back in the interrogation room. And I, I did forget to mention, we talked about how the same night as the rape, there was also that accident that Eddie was involved in and he sliced open his chin. In that process, he was bleeding from his chin and blood got onto his shirt and pants. So just keep that in mind. We'll, we'll address that here in a second. So he's in the interrogation room with the police officers for seven, eight hours. At multiple points in this process, he says, I want to talk to an attorney. His response, according to him, because obviously the detectives deny this, according to him is, you're not under arrest. We're just having a conversation. There's no need for you to have an attorney right now. Okay, big red flag. And then he says, okay, if I can't have an attorney, please let me talk to my commanding officer at Fort Riley. Just let me talk to him. Again, he's denied. They continue this process for seven, eight hours. No breaks, keep in mind. The individual detectives take breaks. Once in a while, that's just one of them interrogating him, and the other one will go out and vice versa, but Eddie has no breaks. Finally, they tell him, you know what, Eddie? If you're innocent, take a polygraph. Take a polygraph test. You have nothing to hide, and there's nothing wrong. You're going to pass it. You'll be out of here in a couple hours. So Eddie said, well, I should take the polygraph, right? I, want, I need out of here. He's breaking down. He's sobbing. He's crying. He's losing it. So he agrees to take the polygraph. Anyways, he takes the polygraph. The polygrapher tells him immediately after, you failed every question. You failed that you don't know her. I believe that you know her, that you raped her, everything. You failed everything. Of course, unfortunately, wouldn't you know, I don't know if any of this is true or not, or if it was used as an interrogation tactic, because the original polygraph report lost to the ages. Who knows? Who knows if this is true or not? Um, I will say, with my experience with polygraphs, we did them a lot in uh, the Department of Corrections as maintenance polygraph for sex offenders. And one very key aspect with a polygraph is when a person is entering into the polygraph, they are well-rested. They um, aren't emotional. They aren't sick. They, I mean, they're a perfect homeostasis, right? All They're even-keeled. I don't think at any point normal person would consider Eddie even killed when he went into that. And he'd just been interrogated for seven, eight hours. He's emotional. He hasn't eaten. Not to mention two days ago, he just got in a car wreck where it split his face open. So I think even if that was a legitimate um, polygraph, that calls into question the validity of it for sure. Just let me insert just a couple of comments about the polygraph. I think most of our listeners, Beth, know that polygraph results are not admissible in a trial uh, with 
rare exceptions. The parties can stipulate to let them in. Uh, I don't know why, but there could be reasons. I think that happens. Yeah, there's so many factors that come into play the validity of it, like I said. And the reason, let's, let's remember, the reason is it's not inadmissible is because it does not rise to the level of um, reliability. It's, it is not a reliable method. That's why it's not admissible. However, as you've already alluded to, Beth, it is such a powerful interrogation tool. And by giving Eddie this test and then telling him, oh, you failed, you failed, whether that's true or not, you failed, Eddie, we now know you did it. Mm -hmm. It's just a powerful tool to hit him over the head with further uh, to try to break, break him, down. him down. Well, that's, And Eddie said that's exactly what happened. He knew as soon as he heard the polygrapher say those results, he knew he was not leaving that room, at least not a free man. And another thing just... I think all of us would can easily say, or would ease, most of us would easily say, I would never confess to a crime I didn't commit. I would never say I did something like that. And that's why, just because we all feel that way, that's why this kind of thing carries so much weight with the jurors. The jurors are sitting in trial and say, I would never say that, I did something I didn't do. Um, so yeah, it's it's a powerful, it's a powerful obstacle that a defendant has to overcome. Obviously, but it happens. It happens. Yeah, and it was exactly what you said. Exactly what Eddie ended up ended up deciding to do. He knew he was innocent. He knew there would be no evidence pointing him to this crime. So he decided, I'm going to tell them whatever they want to hear to get me out of this room. I'm going to talk to a lawyer and we're going to get this cleared up. So that's what he did. He got in. I'll tell you what, what do you want to know? I'll tell you anything. What do you want to know? So they started off. Okay. How did you get access to the house? He immediately thought of a John Wayne movie. I kicked in the front door. Well, wouldn't you know it? The actual assailant went in through the back door. Okay. Well, you sure it was the front door or the back door? Okay. It was the back door, obviously leading him to the right answer. When he continued to get stuff wrong, they would kind of place information for him. Okay, so what did you do with the knife? Keep in mind, Eddie never mentioned a knife. So then he was given the opportunity, okay, there's a knife involved in this. I need to tell him about a knife. So they force-fed him, coerced him, however you want to say it, all of the facts of this case. And wouldn't you also know that just so happens this entire eight hours of interrogation wasn't being recorded. But you know when they wanted to record? after Eddie had verbatimly spit back all the facts that they had given him. Then they wanted him to say it again, probably nice and slow, into the mic, exactly what happened so they could record it, which is what happened. Speaking of... Um, speaking of confessing to something that you didn't do, I have a little anecdote that always brings me to mind that in no way, shape, or form is anywhere to the scale of this, but is something that's very formative for me. Uh, when I was in grade school, in PE, we had a rule that you could only drink out of the water fountain once. One drink for whatever reason, and then you had to go back to whatever you were doing. So we were taking a break. I took my drink out of the water fountain. I went and sat down waiting for whatever to happen. And then somebody came to the teacher and said, I saw Beth take two drinks out of the water fountain. Me, knowing, no, I didn't, said, no, I didn't. He asked, the, the gym teacher asked me, I said, no. Then he asked the class, did anybody else see Beth take two drinks out of the water fountain? One other person said, yeah, I saw her. So he had us three girls sit in the bleachers the remainder of the class, all because of two drinks out of the water fountain, one of which I did not take. Anyways, I digress. So at the end of class, he comes to us again. He asked the two girls, are you sure you saw Beth take a drink out of the water fountain? One of the girls said, I, I don't know. Maybe it was a different colored shirt. I don't know. And the other girl still held strong. Yeah, she took two drinks. And me, of course, no, I did not take two drinks. So we sat there an entire class period, another entire class period. Keep in mind, my class is already back in their classroom. This is an entirely different class that's in there of different people. At the end of that class, he comes to us again. He asks the girl, are you sure it's Beth? She at that point says, I don't know. 
obviously just wanting to leave. Me, I held fast. You know how I am. Said, no, I didn't take two drinks. So he kept me alone in there by myself, a third class period. This is three class periods. I was not one, contrary to popular belief, to get in trouble when I was little. So this whole experience was kind of traumatizing to me. Not only was I missing out on class, and of course, you know how you look back in retrospect, especially from the memory of a child, things are a little bit different. Um, In my mind, it was a long time I was sitting up there. I was embarrassed. I was scared. I was sitting up. Everybody saw me sitting up there. Obviously, they knew I did something wrong, and it had to have been a bad, bad thing for me to sit up there that long that the time, the next time he came and asked me about it, I said, yes, I took another drink. I wanted out of there. I wanted to go back to class. I wanted, I wanted my mommy and daddy. <laughs> but seriously, I told him I did 100% did. Just let me go. I remember him walking me back to my classroom and telling my teacher what happened. That to this day sticks with me and bugs me every time I see this man. And granted, I love him. He's a wonderful teacher. But every time I see him out in the community, not that he would ever remember, I want to tell him, hey, by the way, I never, ever took two drinks out of that water fountain. And obviously, that's a very dumbed down version. But I think the general philosophy still matches. It's not, I mean... It's very easy to wear somebody down and take everything away, stripping everything away, where they just want mentally, they need out of that situation and they're going to do what they need to do to get out of it. So whenever somebody talks about false confessions, immediately my brain goes to that. It was a very formative memory for me. I have very few memories from grade school, and unfortunately that's one of them. Or fortunately, I guess. I don't know. Either way. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, yeah. Because I, that that is, I'm even though, as you said, this... The scale. How trivial it is. Yes, it has nothing yeah. to do with a person's but, life but or race, the but still. it's the same thing. You wanted to get out. Yes. And the only way out was to say you did something you didn't do, to yes. tell a lie. Yep. And that got you out of there. That, and, yeah, that continues to happen in our culture. For water fountain drinks. Maybe more severe things, too. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe. Hopefully not. Okay, so we're on to the trial correct? So he's had this confession. He immediately recants the confession. His attorney moves to have it suppressed so the prosecution doesn't move or doesn't use it in court, which of course is really the only evidence they have linking him to this. Uh, the judge rules that uh, he was made, he made the confession on his own free will and allows it in the case. The first jury trial uh, is a hung jury, which means they couldn't come to a unanimous decision on his guilt or innocence. So it was retried. The second time, the prosecutor says, we are either left to believe that a man who admitted that he committed rape, a violent rape on a woman, and then wants to immediately go back and recant that is telling the truth, or these two seasoned detectives that are out there doing the good work fighting criminals are telling the truth. Who has more opportunity to lie? Well, that rang true with a jury, and they convicted him. Absolutely, and just... uh Another part B of this, I would never confess to a crime I didn't com- commit. Part B of that, when you recant it, nobody believes a oh, recant, no. No. recanting statement because it's so self-serving. Yeah. And, yeah, so you you dig a hole with a false oh, for sure. confession that you don't get out of. And this is something every single story I read, every interview I watched, all the research I do, the thing that Eddie talks about the most is how much anger and sadness and disappointment and embarrassment he has about making that decision to make the, the false confession and how it's just, it's something that's struggled. He struggled with his entire life, that one decision and how it ultimately had such a strong impact on the rest of his life. So he's convicted found guilty of rape, aggravated battery, and aggravated assault. Keep in mind, he's 22 years old at the time. He's married and has a three-year-old daughter with him. He's sentenced to 11 years to life for the crime. He's remanded to DOC custody, taken to Larned Correctional Facility. Um, he's also uh, dishonorably discharged from the military at this, pro- at this process due to the crimes. After about six years of being at, uh, La- excuse me, did I say Larned? He's at Lansing Correctional Facility. After six years, he's transferred to a minimum security. Um, And this is a good thing for him because it gives him the opportunity to be in the community sometimes. Think kind of like a work release program. 
Uh, he talks about how he was able to participate on a community softball league team. And because of that opportunity, he met a woman named Terry. So this entire prison sentence so far, he has felt extremely isolated. He's had zero contact with his daughter. He received the good old Dear John letter from his wife saying that would be the last contact she ever had with him, which she held true to. He had very few visits from family, friends, nothing. He was alone. He was isolated. He was miserable. Once he met Terry, he started to see that maybe there was uh, hope for him after this conviction. The holdup for him getting out was the prisoner review board, or actually it was the parole board at that time, excuse me. The parole board passed him twice because he refused to admit or accept guilt of the crime. I have a little bit of experience with this. Granted, this is not in 1991 when Eddie would have been dealing with it. But with my experience working with parole, this is something that would be very accurate. Eddie was convicted of a sexually motivated offense, which would would have qualified him to be a sex offender. As part of being a sex offender, he would be required to complete very specific programming. Uh, One of those programming is called Sex Offender Treatment Program, or SOTP. Again, this is all pertaining to my experience with parole, not necessarily relating to Eddie specifically. For parole, part of the SOT program would be weekly group therapy sessions, or maybe even monthly, depending on what level you are. And at the time when I was with parole, our treatment provider had set curriculum that they had to work through. One of the curriculum that individuals had to complete was to complete kind of almost like a paper, in their own words, the crime, taking responsibility for it, their actions, their triggers, everything. Obviously, Eddie couldn't do that because he still maintained his innocence. After all those years, he decided he was going to do whatever he needed to do to get out. He saw future with Terry. He was lonely. He determined, in his own words, that he lied to get into prison, so he's going to have to lie to get out. And that's what he did. He told the Prisoner Review Board that he was sorry for his crime, that he committed them, and he was paroled in 1991. He and Terry ended up getting married. They moved to Kansas City, Kansas, where he started working for the Ford Company on the assembly line. Um, They had two kids living a very normal life. A few years down the line, he gets a letter in the mail that because of Megan's law, he is now required to register as a sex offender. This was devastating to him. As part of the requirements for registering, he had to provide his address, his name. Um, Now you have pictures and aliases and tattoos. It's essentially the Kansas Sex Offender Registry. A lot of third-party apps have taken over the data and have all sorts of apps that you can look on to see where the nearest sex offender is to you. Uh, This process was humiliating and devastating to him. He had to require to register every three months Uh, And this put him into a really big depression. As part of this, he continued to go to work. He didn't want it to affect negatively his wife or kids if somebody found out that he was a sex offender. So he was just plagued with this overwhelming guilt and sadness. As the years continued to tick by, he started seeing more and more articles about the wonderful DNA and all the wonderful things that DNA was doing for people who are wrongfully convicted. He started cutting out articles and showing his wife, showing maybe this is something we need to look into. He eventually got hooked up with Barry Clark, who was an attorney that worked with his attorney in his first case, the one that ended in the hung trial. And he told Barry, hey, I got to prove my innocence, and I think I can do it through DNA. I want to have the evidence tested for DNA. Barry, unfortunately, had no experience with post-conviction DNA matters. He says that he knew with talking with Eddie that he had to help him because what other reason would he have for coming up after his prison sentence saying he wants to retest all of this? I mean, obviously if he's guilty and he did the crime, his DNA is going to be there and it's just going to prove he's even more guilty. And it's going to do it in a very public manner because unfortunately in order for them to even gain access to the things that were collected at the crime scene, they had to petition the court, which just blows my mind. They have to ask permission to test for DNA. Fortunately, His attorney, Barry Clark, attended a conference that very next week with one of my very own personal heroes, Barry Sheck. If you're unfamiliar with Barry Sheck, he's the co-founder of the Innocence Project in New York. Uh, His program to date has exonerated over 365 individuals from wrongful convictions. He told Barry Sheck 
the situations regarding the case and Eddie's trial and what was going on. And Barry Sheck was able to point him in the right direction on what they needed to do. The first step was they needed to get the DA to allow them to test the evidence. And you know what? Not very many times do we hear about officers of the court doing the right thing. What we talked about earlier, finding the truth, not the conviction. His attorney remembers the conversation he had with the DA on the courthouse steps. And the the district attorney at the time said, if you think this guy didn't do it, let's get it tested. I'm going to help you. How awesome is that? I mean, that's not something we hear about very often, which is what they did, which you think it's a great win. But then you realize this case is 20 years old. So we're having to locate evidence that's 20 years old, which, of course, was a problem. Immediately after the request went through, the records custodian said it had been destroyed. His attorney kept pressing them, please look again, please look again, which led to one final plea. I beg you, just please look again. And wouldn't you know, in the corner of an evidence vault, on the ground behind like a bookcase or something, they found a white envelope, which just so happened to be the rape kit and DNA from the crime. What are the odds, right? Things are finally turning around for Eddie. Eddie said when he heard the news that they found this, that they found the evidence, it was one of the most emotional moments of his life because he knew he was that much closer to that wrong choice he made all those 20 years ago being righted with that wrongful conviction. His attorneys tried to quell his excitement because keep in mind, 20-year-old data in an unrefrigerated evidence locker subject to heat and bacteria, what's the likelihood that they're going to be able to pull anything off of it? Eddie made the decision with his legal counsel to pursue a private lab, which he paid for. He paid for his own DNA testing on the evidence. And this lab just so happened to specialize in old, degraded DNA. He was lucky and fortunate that in September 2000 and let me get the date so I don't mess it up. September 2002, the DNA results were returned proving Eddie was innocent. There was no way he was a contributor of this seminal fluid. Awesome. April the next year, the district court vacated his sentence and dismissed the case. When he was 50 years old in 2011, he, well, initially he had filed a civil case against the uh, police department. And in 2011, it was settled when he was 50 years old for $7.5 million which is approximately $2,000 for every day he was incarcerated. Now, I know there's going to be people out there that are going to hear that number and think, what the hell, that's way too much. Or you're going to know somebody and you're going to tell them about this and they're going to think that. I challenge you, if you're one of those people who feel that way or know someone that feels that way, to ask them, what number would you put on not having your child in your life? What number would you put giving up your career, the career field that you dreamt of being in? What number, how much would it take for you not to have any contact with your family for a decade or to be incarcerated? I can guarantee you that 7.5 doesn't even touch it. And that's just a mental and emotional toll that it took on him. We're not talking about the loss of the opportunity for him to work all those years or the loss of his reputation. So put that in there. So the same year that the civil suit was settlement was reached, the Kansas Attorney General's office announced the arrest of David Brewer. This is important because David Brewer was the actual rapist from the crime, the one that Eddie was convicted of. He was the one, the perpetrator. He was 55 years old at his arrest and living in the Bronx. Back when the crime was committed, he was also an officer stationed at Fort Riley, and a heavy drinker. Going back to how the detective zeroed in on Eddie pretty quick, wouldn't you know there's some crazy coincidences I'd like to tell you about, Dad. Are you ready for these? So Mr. Brewer, the actual rapist of this crime, was the suspect of two prior rapes prior to the one Eddie was convicted of. So he was already known to law enforcement as a suspect in two prior rapes that same year, that same year. He was also, when they were interrogating Eddie in that room, and he was locked up and they were feeding him all those answers, they were giving him all those facts, 
Mr. Brewer was sitting in the county jail, being arrested for another rape that had occurred the night after. Law enforcement was aware of this, and yet they continued to pursue Eddie, despite him knowing nothing about the crime. What the F? And they pursued Eddie because he was in a few block within a few blocks of the crime at 3 a.m. in a small town. That's it. That's, that's what they led with when they had a suspected serial rapist sitting in jail. It just, it just blows my mind. All of these rapes occurred within, like, blocks of each other, right? So the detectives are choosing to believe that there's two separate rapists out there. It's nuts. So, um, Mr. Brewer was ultimately charged with two cases of rape. Uh, there's some kind of misinformation out there or contrary information. One was obviously the rape that Eddie was charged for. And the one was rape afterwards. Some say it was the day after. So the 26th was the one Eddie was charged with. Some say it occurred on the 27th, the second rape. And some say it occurred later. But needless to say, he was charged with two rapes. He pled no contest and guilty to both of them in hopes of receiving a plea deal. You want to know what the plea deal was? Keep in mind, this is 30 years after. But the plea deal that he agreed to was five years house arrest. And he would be returned to New York to his home for two rapes of two elderly women, two violent rapes. That's what his attorney and the DA agreed to at the time. So at sentencing, the judge decided that probably wasn't a good option and did not go along with the pre-agreement, ordering him to two concurrent prison terms of 12 to 20 years. He had, and I can't find a lot after that because he filed a motion for a downward departure and then everything just falls off. And something I should mention about... Daniel Brewer, the actual rapist, the years were not kind to him. He spent time incarcerated for cocaine convictions. He was severely physically ill. I, I want to say he was even wheelchair bound. So I'm wondering if maybe that played into such a low sentence or plea degree that they originally offered him. Um, but it, it, that just blows my mind. Eddie was present in the courtroom when the judge changed or did not follow the plea agreement and ordered him to the the prison sentence. He felt it seemed a prison sentence. So I feel like that was very vindicating for Eddie. Eddie currently is a singer, a songwriter, and a musician. Uh, him and Terry have two children together that are adults. He is working on rebuilding a relationship with his daughter. When he was incarcerated, I don't know if I mentioned, but he would write letters to his three-year-old daughter at the time. He'd write letters to her all the time. Of course, they were never being returned. So we never knew if she was receiving them or not. One of his fellow inmates suggested, hey, why don't you just write journals to her? So that's what he did. His entire prison sentence, he wrote journals to his daughter. There's a MSNBC documentary about Eddie's case called The Disturbing Case of Eddie Lowry, which unfortunately all I can find is transcripts from. I would love to be able to watch it, but I can't. But at the end of this special documentary, whatever you want to call it, they show a reuniting between him and his eldest daughter where she tells him that he she did receive the letters and how happy they made him, and he gave her the journals, which really gives hopes to maybe they had some sort of relationship afterwards. They were able to come together. So the issues in this case, obviously confession, right? They force-fed him the facts. They spit them back to him. There had been, like you said, there had been a serial sexual assaultist in the, in the town, in the small town, uh, and they were feeling the pressure and they wanted to make an arrest. They wanted to convict him. There is also more bad science in this case. And I wonder if every single time we do this podcast, we're going to mention the word serologist because you know what? We're going to mention the word serologist. The rape kit, nightgown from the victim, bed sheets, and Eddie's pants. Remember, he was in a car wreck that night. He had blood on his pants. They were all taken in as evidence. Again, just like Gary Dotson, we're talking pre-DNA here, so the best they could do is blood typing, which they did. They determined that the victim was a type A blood, which was consistent with the blood on the sheets and the nightgown, and they determined that Eddie was type O, which was con 
consistent with the seminal fluid recovered from the rape kit and I believe the sheets maybe. The serologist at the trial testified that there's 45, or excuse me, 48% of the population has type O blood. So about half, according to her, has type O blood. She then fur- further narrowed it down, and we're getting into this whole secretor, non-secretor, just like with Gary Dotson, that she was able to narrow it down even further to 38.4% of the population. She did this by assuming Eddie was a secretor because 80% of the population are secretors. Now, again, to recover what a secretor is, there are secretors and non-secretors. And according to this one serologist, if I'm going to go off her numbers, which I feel weird doing, 80% of the population is a secretor. That means you can identify blood type and fluid other than blood. So that means in semen, in sweat, in saliva, it carries your blood type. Non-secretors, that does not happen. You cannot identify the blood type in those other fluids because it's not present. So had she tested Eddie to see if he was a secretor or not, if he was not a secretor, that would have immediately ruled him out because they wouldn't have been able to tell the blood type. But again, we don't know because she didn't do it. She just assumed that he was a secretor because 80% of the population was. So again, statistics, not accurate. And even if they were accurate, if we're told to judge based upon a reasonable doubt, if somebody's telling me that 38% 0.4% of the population would provide the same results as what this individual did. I think that would bring reasonable doubt to me. I don't know. What about you, dad? I, that, yeah, that led me into a whole line of thinking about whether that you cannot assign a numerical value to beyond reasonable doubt. During a trial, when the uh, attorneys are talking to the jury, like it, let's say closing arguments, Um, they're not allowed to identify or define. They are not allowed to define the phrase beyond a reasonable doubt. That phrase stands by itself on its own, and the jury is left to determine. You know, you you can't assign a numerical value to it. But yeah, where is that number? You just mentioned one. The first the, one was 48%. 40%, yeah, 48% I mean, of the population has type O blood. Yeah, according to this serologist. Again, if we're, if we're going to use your numbers, but still. It is an interesting it, uh, it is an interesting thing to consider about if you were to assign a numerical value to beyond a reasonable doubt where it would be. I I remember one case I had that involved uh, DNA where the number was just astronomical. It was like one out of billions. So not 38.4% <laughs> at best case scenario. It was one out of billions. And when I saw the number, I thought, I wonder if that's, I wonder if that number is larger than the world population. population. Yeah. And then the next thought I had was the <laughs> we're telling the jury that it was either the defendant or an alien life form because we've gone out. <laughs> okay, that's, maybe that. That's a little bit better odds, I think. Yeah. So DNA can give us these amazing numbers. Um, but yeah, where, when does it reach the burden of proof? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. I'm going to leave you with one quick final thing. Well, actually, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to leave you on a positive note, because this is not positive. So I miss, I mentioned that MSNBC special that they did about Eddie, and he never he did receive the settlement from the police department, but he never received any kind of admission of any problematic behavior or guilt or anything from anybody, um, which you think he would, because obviously something went wrong. The MSNBC documentary interviewed the prosecutor and one of the detectives. And wouldn't you know, despite the fact that the DNA excluded him, they still believe that he could have had something to do with it. What is wrong with people? 
So they interviewed Barry Sheck once he was aware of that information. He's saying, so you're telling me that Eddie took the fall for a known rapist, spent 10 years in prison, another 10 on the sex offender registry just to take the fall for this guy that he never met? I will for the life of me never understand why these law enforcement officers, prosecutors that we've seen just in the few episodes that we've seen choose to die on these hills. They, I don't, beyond me. Okay, so ending on a positive note, because that was not positive, uh, Eddie is happy, healthy, living in California with his wife and his two kids. Um, from all accounts, a very picturesque, beautiful life. He is a songwriter. You can Google him. He has lots of songs about his incarceration, about the emotions and feelings he experienced during them. Uh, he had the opportunity to perform at one of the Innocence Project events with a fellow other exonerees and the exoneration band, which was cool. I will say, once you do more research on him, if you choose to, make sure you put Eddie James Lowry, Kansas, because apparently there is a very well-known Eddie Lowry who was in the golf world. I don't want to diminish the golf world, Eddie, because frankly, I don't know a lot about it. It was just very frustrating because I didn't want to know about golf. I want to know about our Eddie Lowry. So there you go. One one final question. Excellent job, Beth. Thank this you. is a great story. It is. Uh, thank you for bringing this to us. Uh, one question. Do you know whether he got the dishonorable discharge no. correct? And I can't tell you how much that bothers me. Because obviously that's a, he set out in the military wanting it to make it a career. And by all accounts, he was ranking up. He was, he was a good soldier. He was doing what he needed to do. So the fact that that, his family, his freedom, everything was stripped away from him frustrates me so much. So if somebody else knows, again, you could find us on Instagram at Cleared Pod or at Facebook at Cleared Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have suggestions of other exonerees or stories you want us to tell, please let us know. I think you that's have anything it. else? Oh, I do want to say that we have agreed upon a schedule. I apologize for the delay in new episodes. We were trying to work out some future guests and the time frames just weren't adding up. So I could see Dad just smiling over there. You will get to hear stories from my father and I every two weeks. The actual date to be determined later. And actually, I shouldn't say every two weeks. It'll be twice a month. That's a better way of saying it. Well, that's not a better way. That's the way of saying it. It'll be twice a month. You will hear stories about exonerees from Dad and I. Thank you. Thank you.